Joy to be with you. It's been a while, quite a while. When I was here last uh, to visit and work with the church, uh, this, this was in planning stages. I remember them walking me out back and showing me where it was going to be. The garage was there. Took a walk through the old building and almost got lost. All the pegs that I, that I had in place uh, have moved a little bit. Just a, a very well done job. This is an incredible facility and it's, uh, it's a great place to worship and focus on what God is doing. And just a quick update, uh, I continue, my name's Ken Pauley, I continue to work with pastors and churches. Uh, I work with churches in process of pastoral search, I work with churches in evaluation and strategic planning and leadership and ministry development and work with pastors as well. And um, <clears throat> that's how we junctioned together a number of years ago, that was 2006-2007, uh, if my records are complete. And uh, it's good to be here to be able to encourage you and also to build some of those uh, uh, acquaintances back up because it's been a joy. Uh, I enjoyed, I truly did enjoy my time with you folks. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that you are the Almighty One and that you are the ruler of the universe. And as we uh, commit ourselves to you and to the study of your word, we just ask your blessing on that, that you would challenge us, that you would change us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 72 will be our ultimate destination this morning. <clears throat> Before we go there, though, I want to pack in a little bit of background. Uh, just uh, if you're familiar with, with God's Word, uh, this may be review for you, but there, is, uh, there are some relevant things that come into the play uh, before we get into Psalm 72. The nation Israel, when it was founded, began with the truest and best form of government. It was founded as a theocracy, which is a long word that describes people who were directly ruled by God. God is the one that set the uh, rules, and, and they were perfect. They were based on his character. They were there to protect and provide for the people. The, uh, the earthly leaders were there to uh, carry out the directives of God. And unfortunately, even though it was a perfect form of government, uh, the nation often pushed against that and rebelled and resisted. And because of the sin of, of the people and the sin of the rulers, particularly those who were in place of spiritual leadership, the nation Israel demanded a human king just like the nations around them. We moved into that transitional point. Uh, if you're familiar with the biblical history, the time of the judges where everyone did their own thing, uh, did what was right in their own eyes. And then we moved into the narrative of First and Second Samuel. And in First Samuel, we learned that the uh, priest Eli was in charge of the spiritual leadership. His sons were corrupt. His spiritual disciple, Samuel, was honorable and honored God and led the nation righteously. But in First Samuel 8, the text tells us his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside for after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, bribes and perverted justice. So all the uh, elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, You are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. The text continues. I'm still in 1 Samuel 8. 
Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. <coughs> Excuse me. And let them know what the king will, who will reign over them will do. So Samuel said the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground, reap his harvest, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and bakers and cooks. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards, olive groves, and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys will be, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. <laughs> I remember somebody reading this one time and said, sounds like my boss. <laughs> but uh, even in this in the picture of what's going to take place, the nation Israel still demanded. They said, we want a king then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us out and go before us and fight our battles. Think about a king, absolute authority. In the surrounding nations, kings had the, uh, could take stuff from one person, give it to another on a whim, or if they woke up crabby, they could uh, sentence somebody to death. And as Americans, we, we really have a hard time grasping the whole essence of what a king or a monarchy is. But God gave the nation a king who fit the specifications, uh, who fit in and, and would, uh, would be like the other nations. He picked Saul, which the text in 1 Samuel says, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all the others. What he lacked, however, was a spiritual heart and true commitment to God. And in summing up his reign, 1 Chronicles 10 says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord and did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned his kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. That lays out the context. That's what brings us into Psalm 72. So if you would move to uh, Psalm 72 in your Bibles. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart, just a, actually a complete opposite of what Saul was. Sincere and confident faith, jealous in his, zealous in his desire to honor God, not perfect by any means, but a man who pursued God, and God promised him a rulership, a dynasty that would last forever and ever. Even given the negative start and the demand for a king by the nation, God was active to redeem the rebellion for his own glory and purposes. So here we pick up in Psalm 72. Uh, some of your Bibles will just have a note, a heading, a Psalm of Solomon. Some have a, a heading like the reign of, a right, of the righteous king. And it begins this, give, your, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Now just um, in case you, you find this important, there is some debate to whether this is actually a psalm of Solomon. The ancient Hebrews understood it to be a, song, uh, a, a psalm from Solomon. Some commentators believe it was David writing and referring to the king's son forward instead of uh, the king's son looking back. But either way, uh, this is a text that talks about the royal reign, the promise of a king, 
and the, and the Davidic dynasty. For those of you that are poetry-based, uh, psalms are poetry, and this, like other psalms, has a certain rhythmic design. Uh, verse 1, focus on kingship. It picks up that theme in verses, uh, verses uh, 18 through 20 that echo and expand that thought. We're going to look at this thematically. We're going to look at verse 1 and then 18 through 20. And then the second pulse is verse 2 through 5, which focus on the character of the king. Verses 14, or 12 through 14 echo and expand that concept of the character of the king. Verses 6 through 11 focus on the blessings of the king. And then again we get the echo in verses 15 through 17 which echo and expand the blessing aspect. So let's start with the bookends. And the first uh, reading in verse 1, as I just did, uh, the author identifies himself as the king's son. He's referring to his father David. This is written by Solomon. And in that process is affirming a certain heritage or a kingly line. God had promised David that his line would not end, that he would have the right to the throne of Israel throughout eternity. And we understand that, <clears throat> that over the course of time that, uh, that nation Israel has taken different courses and different paths. But the right and the rulership still belongs to the line of David. In verses 18 through 20, it picks up that theme. And the theme is a bit different because it says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So how do we get to, here's, so we're talking about Solomon and David, and get to the concept that this is going to be talking about uh, somebody else. I just want to introduce to you a concept that can be uh, from the Bible that can be referred to as a spiritual law of vision. And here's what it is in a nutshell. It can be defined in this manner that God paints physical pictures which allow us to understand spiritual truths. The physical pictures are signposts directing us towards the spiritual reality. Though the physical pictures are flawed, they do not, uh, and they do not and cannot perfectly embody the spiritual truth, they point that direction. We actually encountered that in one of the worship songs this morning, uh, God, Your Reign, when it talks about the stars and the and displaying character of God. The, the, the reading for the catechism that we had this morning came out of Romans 1. In Romans 1, that very same text gives us that same picture again. In verse 20 of chapter 1 says, and many of you are familiar with this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which is made, so men are without excuse. This text of scripture in the Psalms and other places tell us that there are physical realities that as we look at those and look beyond them, we can see something significant about spiritual things. As Romans 13 tells us that, that government, that those that rule over us are an extension of God's ministry to us. It's the same type of physical picture. 
that we learn obedience to God by learning obedience to the physical, physical authorities that are put in front of us. Created world points to incredible spiritual realities. There are other ways that God has painted those pictures. Well, we have the same concept here in Psalm 72. David and Solomon are in the immediate view. And much of what we read here has relevance to them. But they actually, in this psalm, are serving to paint a picture of a future reign, the reign of the promised king. The more global view that underlies this psalm is looking ahead to the reign of the Messiah, who not only will take away the sins of the people, but he will be the one that establishes throughout eternity the final installment of the Davidic throne and brings it to completion. The psalm captures, as it does that, kind of a picture of the ideal earthly reign, couched in the, in the context of David and Solomon's reign, but again with that eye on the horizon to the Messiah that is Jesus, the, um, the, the one that would be coming. The pictures of David and Solomon demonstrate some elements which will be present. See, that again is that idea, this, this spiritual law of vision. David, one of the two things that, that represented his kingdom was the power, the victory, and just the zest, the, the zeal for God. Solomon displayed wisdom and splendor and blessings. And all of those things will be combined into this one, the future king, the promised king, who is Jesus. The portrait of the ideal king, as we look through this psalm in a moment, will never, never, never be fully realized by any earthly monarch. Rather, it finds its perfect fulfillment in Christ and only in Christ and his kingdom. Both David and Solomon departed from the ideal. So did all their successors. We have broken people in a broken world. The ideal that's placed here is very hard to come by in this world in which we live. As uh, the late radio broadcaster Paul Harvey used to be fond of saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And self-government without self-discipline won't work. But there is an ideal. There is an ideal standard for human government, and it is here in Psalm 72. So let's progress through this text a little bit and understand what God has to say with regard to how <coughs> government... Is, is to run. <clears throat> Again, we're dealing in the framework of a kingship or a monarchy. Verse 1 not only presents that, but also presents a prayer that the king would uh, have the judgments of God and the righteousness of God in making decisions. And verse 2 continues. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice. And let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. So let's just talk about the character of the king. Emphasizes two things that are essential to the character of a godly ruler. Righteousness is the first. Righteousness involves the ability to know right from wrong and the ability to always choose right. Righteousness is not, nor will it ever be, defined by man's preference or by the majority of those who cast a vote. 
Righteousness is an absolute. It is right and wrong and the consistent, the absolute, always choosing what's right. The text talks about justice as well, and that justice involves setting things right. All of us innately understand the principle of justice. From the very young child that sees their friend get a toy, or somebody getting a little bit bigger piece of cake, to the feeling we get inside when we hear of uh, war atrocities or children being abused. There's something innate in our, in our DNA. Not only, I believe, is, is there by God's seed for righteousness, but also for justice. It's that feeling we get when a, pass, when a driver passes us at a high rate of speed. And we say, where's the policeman? Of course, sometimes we get selective and we, we ignore the fact that we're ten over ourselves. <laughs> we want that selective justice. True justice <clears throat> never grades on a curve or by comparison with others. It is implemented objectively and consistently. It is never selective or biased in favor of one person over another. Just imagine, if you would, what an immense different world we would live in if the human authorities that are in place ruled with these two characteristics. This is the absolute ideal. This is the time when there, and, and we'll talk about the peace and the blessings that come out of that. But verse 12 through 14 expand the concepts and tell us how they're put into practice. How justice is played out. Verse 12, He will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also and him who has no helper. Righteousness and justice will always stand against the oppressors and will be an advocate for those who have no advocate. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, verse 13 says, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. The righteous and the justice will provide protection from evildoers, from selfish users, of those, uh, for those who cannot protect themselves. Righteousness and justice balance power. Rather than it going to the strong or to the wealthy, it's equally distributed amongst all. It makes sure the rules are fair and no one gets taken advantage of. Righteousness and justice means that no one gets the short end of the stick. The promised Messiah will perfectly apply these ideals. He is the only one actually who can. Because as the Messiah who is fully human, fully God, not only does he understand, know everything accurately, fully, all the details and circumstances, but he will always judge objectively, fairly, and accurately. Now when we're on the uh, downside being taken advantage, that's what we want. But it's a pretty broad swath that that sword cuts because there's immense accountability <clears throat> that comes with that type of rulership. Sometimes it gets a bit uncomfortable because it means that we 
we will never, in this type of setting, never have the ability to cut corners. It will be a reign of absolute fairness and an absolute uncompromising investment of truth. By the way, in verse 5, as we went through as we went through the text, let them fear you while a sun endures as long as the moon and throughout all generations. See, that's that, that underlying thing. That's the vision, that's the view into the future. Talks about that eternal reign, and it's speaking there, uh, looking forward to Messiah. But not only is the promised king one that would have these characteristics for, for governance, to protect and provide for the people. But there are also immense blessings that come with that kingship. <clears throat> and we find that again in verses 6 through 11 and then 15 through 17. Verse 6, May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. The blessing that comes because of the righteous rule in the renewal and replenishment of the earth. Verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and the abundance of peace till the moon is no more. A prevailing environment of peace and righteousness for people in the land. All a product of this righteous rule of the promised king. Which makes a lot of sense. You know, blessings are a natural outcome when righteousness and justice reign. Righteous resources are not continually squandered by attempts to oppress or take advantage of others. Blessings are part of God's uh, clear indication in the Jewish mindset of God's favor. Verse 8 through 11 talks about the expanse, uh, expansion of the king's influence and reign, submission of other kings who will bring homage and gifts. Verse 15 talks about the prayer of people on his behalf for his well-being and rule. Verse 16, again, emphasis of the abundance of produce from the fields. And verse 17, a universal awareness of God's blessing upon him and a result of his reign. It says, may his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let the men bless uh, them themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. Again, a pointer to the final Messiah, the fullness and completeness of the Davidic reign. This is an incredible psalm in the fact that it paints this portrait of what is to come. Things that our very heart yearns for. But as we look at this psalm, not only does it look ahead and create that ideal, it, it's beyond just understanding God's ideal for the government, though that has relevance. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it recently struck me how much of the news is already being diverted to the 2016 presidential um, race. It's August 2015, and the cycle is already starting to absorb a fair amount of headlines. The uh, vacation or the oasis from all the political advertising will soon be empty, soon be gone. When we last count, what, a, about a thousand Republican candidates and one Democrat? No, no. Actually, the count is 16 Republicans and I believe five Democrats. But each one of them 
will present their version of a successful government, most within a context of promises to seek votes. Some will have a long streak of promises. Some will seek to divide. Some will cloak themselves in a manner that actually appeals to greed and selfishness. All will present the promise of a better world. But the reality is the, the fullness of a promise for the better world comes only in and through Jesus Christ. Those earthly rulers that reflect these ideals will do well. And that is part of what we look for, I think, as that election cycle comes forward. But the anticipation <clears throat> is the final reign of the King of Promise. As I was working on this text uh, constantly, as I reviewed and studied this, this psalm, another psalm just continually came to mind. And I'm not going to uh, try to digest the whole psalm with you this morning, but I just want to reference, uh, reference Psalm 2. And this take you through it on a rough oversight. Psalm 2 can be laid out like a multi-act play. There are several different acts. The first one, in verse 1 through 3, are the kings of the world standing in rebellion against God. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cord from us. The second act is a scene from heaven, which is an interesting scene. He who sits in the heaven laughs and actually scoffs at them. And then he will speak in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And he lays down this reality. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have given the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth to your possession. Though we don't see it in the physical rulership, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised king, at this point in time still is the appointed king and sits on the throne. And the text goes on in Sage 3. It's a scene eclipsing the gap between the picture of the earthly rulers and the picture of the, of the heavenly. <coughs> and it gives this warning. <coughs> now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judgments of the earth, Worship the Lord in reverence and rejoice in trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. The reality is we can take refuge in Jesus Christ even today. In fact, this uh, Jesus Christ, the one that, who brings completeness and fulfillment of these promises of Psalm 72, though not physically reigning here on earth, is reigning spiritually, has, has, has all victory, all things are placed in submission to him. And we can look to him ultimately for fullness of justice, fullness of righteousness, and as a pattern for our life. We yield to him with, in faith and with absolute confidence that he can and will be at work. 
this uh, challenge in Psalm 2 is not just a warning to kings and kingdoms. It is a challenge to every human heart to understand the ideal rule of righteousness and justice and a challenge of the responsibility that comes with that and a call for response. An absolute truth, God has appointed his son as Messiah King who rules the spiritual throne. And when God chooses to bring things to an end, or if any of us dies before that happens, justice and righteousness will be the operable operative principles when we stand before his throne. No impurity allowed. All unrighteousness will be made known and justice will reign. Now those who are in Christ, that's a relief. Because the question is, how can a man stand, how can a person stand before God? If there's complete and absolute justice and no unrighteousness will reign. Because the scriptures tell us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But that verse continues and says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does that work with a perfect standard of righteousness and justice? Sin has a cost. You know, Roman, or Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or removal of sin. See, that's the beauty, and that's the, the, the mystery in a sense, and the uniqueness of this, the, the, the promised king, the coming Messiah, is that Jesus Christ came, he took on flesh, and he walked here amongst us and showed righteousness and justice, and made a choice to die in the place of those who would choose to believe him for salvation and eternal life. We know the verse, don't we? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the justice and the, the righteousness that is due for our sin, for those who choose to accept that gift, have been absorbed through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is complete release and freedom from the penalty, from the power, and ultimately from the presence of sin, which is an exciting thing. The promised king will come. In essence, he already has. He's on the throne, though he's not ruling in the physical sense today. The wisdom of Psalm 2 is very relevant to us today. Rebellion or yielding, it is a choice we make. But isn't it great to know that because of Jesus Christ, we can be released and freed and forgiven our sins. Challenge you to choose and to choose wisely. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the promise of the King. Thank you. Uh, for those times in our human existence when we encounter human leaders that, uh, that exemplify the principles of righteousness and truth. And Heavenly Father, I just uh, pray that you would challenge and change us, that we would yield to the, the promised King, and that we would seek to serve him and live out that righteousness and truth.
on a day-to-day basis. And we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.